But you come to the realization that to be a good communicator, 50% is about listening. And you don't listen to rebut. You listen to understand. You listen to empathize. And I think oh, when, I love you, that. when you, you know, when you get more perspective in life, when mm. you, you know, get more experiences, you try to do that as much as you can. And I think that's how it changes me from a lawyer to a corporate person to a person who is completely invested in social aspects of life, like, you know, human rights, women's rights, gender rights, um, and education. Um, I think that's how I become sure that this is the kind of things I want to do in life. Welcome to Seek to Speak's podcast, where we are now joined by the amazing Amelia Sharif. In this third episode, we talked all about teaching and learning soft skills online, the importance of critical and creative thinking skills, something that she believes should be taught in national schools. And after the break, we then spoke about sexual and online harassment and what you can do when faced with such issues as well as the urgent need to establish specific rules to govern harassment. It was an extremely informative session discussing a whole host of diverse issues and I'm sure you all will love it. Be sure to also follow or subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. And if you like what you hear, please give us a review. It really, really helps more people to discover what we do as well as what we stand for. And without further ado, this is episode three of Seek to Speak's podcast. Hi everyone, welcome to Seek to Speak's podcast. My name is Aisa and today with me is a very, very special guest. Her name is Amelia Sharif. She is the CEO of the Malaysian Institute for Debate and Public Speaking. She is also the managing partner of Speak Up Malaysia, as well as the founder of G-Blog. She has done so much advocacy in the past few years, but and essentially, she is an entrepreneur, an educator, as well as a an amazing person. <laughs> she's just a an amazing, passionate person who is just a joy to be with. And today, we're going to talk about all of the wonderful things she does for Malaysia. Thank you so much for being here. Em. Thank you for having me. Okay, so you are the CEO of MIDP, which I will now call MIDP, which stands for Malaysian Institute for Debate and Public Speaking. Can you tell me a little bit about what MIDP does? We are an organization focusing on education and human capital development. Basically, we have four main operations, um, training, events, consultancy, and advocacy. Wow. Um, for under our training operations, we basically have two training centers. Um, usually, we have about 300 students with us um, covering four different courses, you know, which they come in at the start of the year and then they leave at the end. They graduate, they move up to an intermediate level, to an advanced level. So basically, it's, an whole, um, it's a whole education system on its own. Under our events arm, we basically do competitions, workshop around Malaysia. We would like to think of ourselves as an organization that is responsible to make debating, public speaking and generally soft skills training more accessible, not just to people in Klang Valley, but also to those outside of um, you know these areas that are usually deemed more privileged. Um, on average, we do about 30 to 40 events a year, not including like major international events, which we try to do once um, or twice every year. 
Okay, so where, what I wanted to get at with that is because MIDP does a lot of classes and events which currently during the MCO and with the pandemic is very difficult to do. How have you made that change? Because we see a lot of education providers now moving online. And I know as a teacher, you have transferred all of your classes with how many students do you have right now? Uh, well, about 200. I think we lost a little bit, but yeah, we still have 200. 200 is still a lot to be hosting on a platform. And you've concluded, I think, about six or seven online competitions. Uh, some of them were global. You had the World's Debate Open, which had about 80 teams. You had the Malaysian Public Speaking Open, which had a hundred, yes, no, 70 seven, seven, 72 participants. Um, so how was this possible? Was it a struggle? Um, was there, what, what were your takeaways from this shift? Um, is moving online a struggle? Absolutely. But is it impossible? No. I think MIDP benefited from the fact that we, we prepared to go online a week before the government announced um, the MCO. So we had about a week, not just to talk to parents, um, but also to talk to trainers to find out what is the best platforms um, to use and, you know, to basically figure out what do we do. Um, I think generally where I'm getting at with this is the fact that a lot of preparation has to come mm -hmm. if you're going to explore teaching online and hosting events online. It is not easy, especially with classes um, that are catered to smaller age groups like kids you know as young as six or seven years old but you still manage right you still have eloquent yes junior classes, the eloquent junior right? class is still happening which um, is tailored to seven to nine years old wow yeah. that's amazing and they actually sit behind a computer for two hours every week wow. to you know to go on with their class talk about complex stuff yeah um i think but we just have to thank parents because i think none of this would be um possible without supportive parents who are willing to not just make sure that the kids have, you know, Zoom on the computer, have a proper working, you know, headphones and all of that. Yeah. So I think in these contexts, um, trainers and parents have to work hand in hand because unlike a usual class, where the while the trainer is teaching, the trainer is also overseeing and monitoring the class mm. and the behavior and whether or not these kids are paying attention. But online, that particular role is transferred to parents. So parents have to sit at home and make sure that their kids are actually paying attention. Mm. And when they're staring into the screen, they're actually paying attention in class and not playing, you know, some kind of game. Above online. and beyond everything they're already doing yes. at home, right? Yeah. So, so I would argue that online learning is not just an added challenge for teachers, but an absolute added challenge for parents as well. Do you think, because soft skills is so different from what you learn in schools and in textbooks, it's actually something that you learn from interaction, you know, things like, and it, it ties in hand in hand with like teamwork, leadership. So how have you because you are a trainer yourself you just in fact even as a ceo you did a work storytelling workshop today right yes. with um kids who were as young as seven uh, eight or seven yeah. yeah so how 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 did you try to make that workshop more engaging with these students and how did you find that that what kind of difficulties did you find and how did you approach that workshop 
Well, difficulties are basically things I've described before, but I want to share a little bit about what I try to do during my workshops and oh, classes. Oh, yes, yes, please, please. That can help these students pay Teachers attention. Teachers, listen up. I'm listening. <laughs> um, okay, so the first thing I do is I make it mandatory for everyone to turn on their video. So that means if you have to shower, wear proper clothes to come to a physical class, <laughs> you have to do the same for an online class so that you can turn on your video so that the teacher or the trainer can look at you and make sure that you are paying attention. Because even online, you can actually tell if a kid is not paying attention yeah. online. Sometimes you see their eyes moving from left to right, then you know they're reading something. Sometimes they just look completely, you know, they blank too hard into the screen. <laughs> no, sorry, they stare too hard into the yeah, screen. Yeah. So you know they're playing some kind of a game. Um, so you can tell. So you have to put in that extra effort into like looking through their eyes and like making sure they're paying attention. But beyond that, I just make it a rule to make sure that they respond to me even if their response is, I don't know. Mm. Or I'm not sure. Or, so you're I don't constantly understand. asking questions. Yes. And the way I give that instruction, it is not directive. So I don't say, when I ask a question, you have to answer. Mm. So I probably try to appeal um, on the more human side. I say, guys, if I ask you a question, please answer. I feel really awkward if you don't say anything. I feel like I'm talking to oh, myself. Oh, that's such a nice way to approach it. Yeah. So usually they'll feel like, okay. And then they'll be like, yeah, we'll say something. And then we'll, we'll I, help you feel less awkward. Yeah, we'll help you. Yes, exactly. So they feel like they're actually helping me feel better. Um, and, and sometimes I have rules in class. So if, let's say, we're doing a discussion um, and it's a yes or no question whether or not everyone agree with what we discuss, I make it a point that the third or sometimes depending on the size of the mm. class, the fifth person must disagree. Oh, on, that is a really, really good idea. I have to give credit. I learned that from World War Z. <laughs> that Brad Pitt zombie movie I yeah. was gonna say isn't that like a totally irrelevant movie <laughs> yeah but I thought that that's such a good strategy because sometimes you ask them do you understand do you understand I just say the fifth kid has to say you don't understand and figure out what is it that you can ask me further so I think you just give them and you have to give them like a very specific responsibility and mm. to make sure that they feel a part of the class if you're teaching an online class and that class revolves around you speaking more than fifty percent of the, more than fifty percent of the time, they won't be paying attention, and you'll be doing it wrong. Yeah. Right. So, like for example, in a speech class, if it's a two-hour class or if it's a three-hour class, my rule of thumb is you have to spend at least one out of one third out of that time um speaking, and at most half of that time speaking. The, the rest That's is a good for your students. Yeah. The awareness of all of these tools and all of this information also causes them to be a lot more critical with the information and news that they consume in their daily lives. And I think that's something that MIDP really promotes um, because at the end of the day, all of these communication skills and all of these classes are tailored towards students becoming more critical and creative thinkers. And I think recently you, MIDP, launched a survey about that. Can you tell me a little bit about this survey? What is it called? Sure. It is called, if I get the name right, um, the National Critical and Creative Thinking Survey. Um, but we are focusing on teachers' experiences and feedback because um, it comes from our preliminary observation that in order to create a generation of critical and creative thinkers, of great communicators, it comes from being exposed to like good speaking habits, um, you know, being taught certain things, for example. So we wanted to know that if as a society mm. or if the education system place 
um, this burden on teachers to create this generation of critical and creative thinkers of great communicators, are they equipped with the necessary training, resources, or basically any kind of assistance to be able to fulfill that role? Because otherwise, it would be an absolutely unfair responsibility to put on the teachers. So this survey aims at understanding um, the challenges and the perception of teachers when it comes to the importance of critical and creative thinking, as well as their day-to-day -day life, what can be done um, so that in the end, we hope to understand what can be done to better assist teachers in helping those things. So this survey is really about testing whether or not these teachers think critical and creative thinking skills is important in class and whether or not they have the tools to do that. Why do you think that's important? Why do you think your students need this sort of skills for the labor force or just generally in their lives? Um, firstly, because if we look at recent reports about employability. Mm. Um, I think Ministry of Human Resource have spoken about um, the fact that a lot of youngsters um, entering the workforce aren't able to get mm, a job now. because they don't have um, good English or because they aren't able to communicate effectively during interviews. Um, so that's the first one. The second one is more personal. It's because learning, debating and public speaking like completely changed my life. Like, I would not be the person that I am today had I not been to that first debate class that I went to. Just so you guys know, um, Amelia is an amazing varsity debater. She has won so many competitions um, We're back teammates. in the time. <laughs> She basically carried me. She went on That's to not debate true. internationally. She still... Um, you know, judge debates um, in, in, in university, but even now you still judge a lot of competitions as well. Okay, just for context, so you know that this is the kind of person that she is and she is so lucky to have made it her career, mm. your passion. If I can add on that point, Aisa, um, I just wanted to share because there's a misconception mm. that being able to speak good English or being able to think critically and creatively can only come from um, households that are typically, you know, already speaking English mm -hmm. or would come from like a specific group of people. Well, I don't want to be, um, I don't want to be insensitive to privilege mm -hmm. here. Yes, of course, if you come probably from a mid middle income or a high income group, obviously that is easier um, to do and you know life is generally made easier for these people to access these kind of things. Um, but I don't come from that particular um, group. Uh, when you know growing up my family we don't speak English at all my mother um, she she didn't even know how to speak English mm. um, she's a very low level working class work hard labor in a factory and she had three or four jobs um, because she's, she's a single an mother amazing woman though yeah and the first time I went to school I have no idea how to speak English I remember the first time I go to um, my English class in Tahun Satu when I read the word name I thought it's a misspelling of nama mm. and I read it as nama. So I know how to write my name because, you know, I just mistakenly think that way. Um, so growing up, never been good at it. Um, but when I went for debate class, um, not when, even debate when, class, debate when training. Did you go for in university class? when I was seven, no, 18 years old. And you weren't even in Klang Valley, right? At that time, you were studying in, in Kedah. Yeah, I was in Marbo Um, So that was the point where 
I look at other speakers and I realize how amazing they are and I was like god I want to sound like that one Were day. Were you intimidated? I was absolutely intimidated. I was intimidated. I felt stupid. I felt inadequate all of it at the same time. But I was also a very proud person. Well, I still am. <laughs> And I just, I just thinking, oh, look at how eloquent you are now. I can't imagine that. Well, my English is still not perfect, but I think I try really hard to learn and to improve. And I just refuse to believe that if other people can do it, sure they have a lot of privilege, uh, privileges. They have a lot of opportunities, and I don't have the same opportunities and privileges. So maybe I just have to work extra hard. So that's where this is coming from. I do not want. Anyone else to have to go through that length that I have to go through to get a skill that would come easily had you mm. been richer, had your mm. family come from, um, you know, a higher income class, for example. Um, so yeah, that's why I think critical thinking, creative thinking, communication skills should be made nationwide so that everyone can access to it. And how did that change your life? How did being in debates? I mean, you, you took law. You were a practicing lawyer, and then you were a compliance officer in a public listed company. How did joining debates and working that hard change the way that you spoke? Change the way that you did your job um, later in life? Um, I'm gonna start with the negative impacts first, because I had worked so hard, um, and because you know debaters typically argue. Um, that at one point became a problem where when I hear something, my instinct is to find a fallacy mm. in it or to rebut it. Um, and then I come to the realization like that like a well-oiled machine already. Yes, that is, you know that's just how yeah, my brain works, yeah. right? Still is sometimes, but you come to the realization that to be a good communicator, fifty percent is about listening. And you don't listen to rebut. You listen to understand. You listen to empathize. And I think oh, when I love you, that. when you, you know, when you get more perspective in life, when mm. you, you know, get more experiences, you try to do that as much as you can. And I think that's how it changes me from a lawyer to a corporate person to a person who is completely invested in social aspects of life, like you know, human rights, women's rights, gender rights, um, and education. Um, I think that's how I become sure that this is the kind of things I want to do in life. Maybe one day I'll go back to corporate. I don't know. Um, this Please is, don't. No, this is like difficult <laughs> you need work, to, right? <laughs> you need to achieve the dream. Somebody needs to. <laughs> um, but I think right now I am pretty focused on you know trying to do that. So that's the negative part. Um, yeah. What is the positive part like? Did it make you more fearless uh, in interview sessions? Were you more courageous to ask for things that you would have not otherwise asked? And in fact, would you have championed all of these social causes if not for that training that you had in university? Um, not at all. If I had not joined debating, I would probably still carry very traditional values, very conservative values um, and I probably will be one of those people who don't think about why I believe in certain things it's, it is because it is right it is because that's what my mother told me for those of you who don't know this is so hard to believe because she's absolutely the most understanding sympathetic and also informed person I know so it's shocking that that this just joining debates in university 
made you not to say a completely different person and not even to say a totally upgraded person but to be the best person that you want to be the best version of yourself in it just made me more aware because think about it if you have to debate about issues that you typically won't care about what would you do you would read up make sure you know about the issue why simple because when you talk about it you do not want to sound like a complete idiot <laughs> So you will read up, you'll try to understand. And when you do that, you also realize that in debating, you don't know which side will you be on. Yeah. Will you be proposing or opposing this particular thing? So you read on both sides. You're and forced to understand. You're forced to understand both sides. You are forced to actually think for both sides. And as you grow up and you know become an adult, you will you are actually able to compare which is better. And that's how I um sort of like adjust my moral compass on um, things that I I was not okay with before I was like you know what that's not right. I talk about human rights um in debates. Mm-hmm. Um human rights is not just for debates. Then I realized that it is something that affects my actual life. <laughs> so that's how it sort of like lead to social activism. This podcast is brought to you by seektospeak.com, a public speaking resource suitable for the casual and competitive speaker. Show us some love by checking out our Facebook and Instagram pages. And this is actually really amazing because Amelia is one of the few people that actually started walk walking the talk. You know, she didn't just debate these issues in a competition or at an event. She is actually living the life of social activism. And that's the next question that I want to ask you because you you are not only a CEO of your own company, but you're also the managing partner of Speak Up Malaysia. Can you tell me a little bit of what Speak Up Malaysia does? Okay, Speak Up Malaysia is new. Um it's newly incorporated, mm-hmm. but the work and the passion behind speak up malaysia is not new it is something that i've been doing for like years and yes, years yes, before absolutely. um but speak up malaysia is basically a boutique consultancy firm and we focus on working with organizations um companies ngos whoever basically who, um on ethic um issues relating to ethics so that could mean bullying at the workplace discrimination harassment sexual harassment mm. we also you know work on issues like fraud um and uh financial misstatements for example uh speak up malaysia actually has a sister brand um in the uk um because we the the founder of speak up as a brand is uh, my partner um anima kosai and mm. she founded speak up at work in the uk mm. and speak up malaysia is sort of like the sister company um working on the same um issues um same topics basically yeah and before this was incorporated you were doing a lot of this workshop um sensitivities in uh, companies right yeah uh, can you tell me a little bit uh, about the kind of work that you do in this field Okay so I'm just going to focus on an area which um we do a lot of work on okay. and that is harassment mm-hmm. and bullying at the workplace um So harassment and bullying is something that happens uh and we often just ignore it because we think it is normal but it is not because no matter how small a harassment or a bullying culture is it often translates into bigger problems. So what we do is when organizations feel like they have this uh problem we will come in so we either help them do a risk assessment we can do a process audit to 
find out if you know the structures that they have within that organization work or not uh, we do training we redraft policies we review policies and more importantly we operationalize those policies um, and we also work on um, creating trusts um, where trust is broken um, in really uh, in relationships between management and employees okay and this also covers things like uh, bullying uh, harassment um, I know that you were also part of a campaign to have a sexual harassment bill to be debated and passed in parliament uh, is this work that is related um, what, what what is this campaign um, okay so the campaign comes from our work uh, in drafting the bill in itself so the good um, would you say it came from uh, your work in Speak Up Malaysia or the workshops or training that you've done before because you you notice that there's this gap in policy yeah that yeah companies can do so much but we also mm. need laws in place actually they sort of like feed off each other mm. so i had already started working with organizations on issues relating to ethics discrimination and harassment um, and then i was given the opportunity to be part of the team that draft the sexual harassment bill in malaysia and i think moving forward from there it just sort of like complements each other it makes me realize that okay the law is, there's a loophole in the law here uh, there's a loophole within organizational structure here so how do we create a system that can complement each other that's so great because you're living <laughs> the circumstances and each each portion of that work helps each other yeah and i think it's very important to include that corporate uh corporate aspects into mm, the law on sexual well. harassment because if you think about it um, a lot of sexual harassment happen in the workplace um, yes so you yeah, need to that's include, where you're, you're yeah. at most of the Correct. time right so sexual harassment is not just something that happens in personal relationships but in pers- uh, professional relationships as well um, I think uh, what what do you recommend I mean other than uh, legally if you knew somebody or if our listeners knew somebody who was facing harassment at work or um, on a date, what would you tell them? Okay, if you are facing harassment, we usually tell you to do four things. Mm. Um, the first one is, if you are being harassed, firmly tell the harasser, no, stop doing it. Because this is like a benefit of the doubt thing. So yes, it's uncomfortable for you, but people can't read your mind. So the decent thing to do is to actually tell that person, I don't feel comfortable. Then the decent thing to do for the other person is to respect that, Mm. right? Uh, And I think this communication is important because sometimes, you know, when someone says something that makes you feel uncomfortable, you laugh or you smile, which the other person could interpret as you don't mind, Mm. but actually you laugh because you are so uncomfortable inside, Mm. right? So I think clear communication is very important. So tell this person, no. If you don't feel comfortable saying it to their faces, maybe send an email afterwards or text afterwards. That's really, really good advice because a lot of girls will feel uncomfortable saying it. Yeah, especially if the guy says this really terrible thing of, I'm just joking. Yeah. Um, text this person afterwards and say, you know what, you say this. I think maybe you don't mean any harm, but I, I feel really uncomfortable. Please don't say it again. In fact, I wouldn't encourage you to say it to anyone. 
ever because that's not a nice thing <laughs> yeah, to say you cool. know you can say something like that so that's first the second thing is don't be afraid to react if there's someone else around because remember that person could be an important witness should you decide to take action number three is record every detail of the harassment that happens because when we look at you know past investigations of cases that we've done usually there's always a trend a person who have grossly harassed a person usually have a history of harassment already mm-hmm. they have already harassed a couple of people before or they've done it before um or so usually um we need you to record this um information um so the best way to do this is by sending yourself an email and sending an email to yourself is important because it provides details as to the exact date and time it happened So if let's say you are to write it in a word document for example if later on you need to prove that this has been happening for the past 2 years you can't really prove that you have been recording this for the past 2 years mm-hmm. but if you send an email to yourself in the server there will be an you know actual evidence to show that oh, this has paper been paper trail yes um so i think an email will be a really good contemporaneous evidence to show that this has indeed been happening um for a while especially if you're confused over what is whether or not this is harassment yes you just think it's uncomfortable just just play it safe just write to yourself yeah. and, you and if you don't trust the company server you can just write it personally in your personal email send an email to yourself um with all the details you can even note there that you know things that make you uncomfortable things that were said or who were there um and why you didn't say anything um how it made you feel i think this would really help you later on if you decide to lodge a complaint and the last thing is um when it comes to dealing with um the harassment um if let's say you trust your hr for example you can talk to hr if you don't you can uh, probably um talk to a friend or let a person know if you are seeing a psychiatrist or a counselor you can just highlight this um just make sure that you are able to process the information of what happens and if let's say you work in an organization this could be a, a good chance to actually report it via the company's reporting mechanism if your company does not have a reporting mechanism it's a good time it's a, this is a good time to actually highlight that you probably need one talk to your hr and see what can be done about it okay speaking of bullying and sort of creating a safe space where people can speak up um i wanted to you recently talked about uh, or wrote an article for malay mail um on the value or the politics of calling out and you at the end of the article you talked about how it was important for the government to have some kind of rules and regulations on how people should conduct themselves online because we have a lot of problems with cyberbullying and people think that it's a minor issue but this not only leads to mental health issues depression but also ultimately some young people committing suicide and things like that um can you tell me about what you think the online discourse um scene is like in Malaysia do you think it's productive do you think we are sensitive to each other online um i think it can be productive i've seen a lot of productive conversations on social media on twitter on facebook um but unfortunately when it comes to the kind of ethics or the kind of things we do during a conversation on social media Um we have very very different ideas on what's acceptable and what's not. Mm. Um for example, we have a recent situation where 
everyone was speaking up on an issue relating to Black Lives Matter, right? Um, and some people actually said that just because you curse, that would constitute online harassment. Um, and other people will be like, excuse me, we, you know, use um, curse words to express our emotions sometimes and that shouldn't be um, online harassment. The standards should be higher. And this is my exact problem when it comes to the way we view harassment. Um, it's very, it's very subjective it really depends on your personal standards and that shouldn't be the case so if we were to let's say have a law on cyberbullying which would tell you exactly what would constitute um cyberbullying then it would give us a clearer picture in terms of what can be done and cannot be done um, that means it would be a lot easier for responsible social media users to regulate their own behaviors to regulate what they say um, and you know just generally be more respectful with each other um, I think social media is very tricky because people can hide behind the veil of anonymity and sometimes even if they use their actual identity on social media it's because of the fact that you're not face to face with this person and you somehow so feel much easier to yes, say this horrible yes, thing it is so so I think because there's no personal touch uh, somehow that encourages uh, a situation where people feel more brave to mm. say whatever they want um, and I think that is also something that we need to address um, yeah speaking on that I want you to debunk this misconception where if we have some kind of regulation online we are limiting someone's freedom of speech um, that we are actually limiting discourse, that we can't have the kind of um, accountable calling out culture that we see that is progressive in today's world. Can you please debunk that misconception? Because so many people feel like, oh no, you can't regulate the internet. It's the only place we can sort of like express ourselves, but really not all expressions are equal or equally important, mm. right? Um, so let's start with saying that freedom of speech and expression is really important and mm. is an important part of a democracy for it to be fully functioning. However, as with other rights, freedom of speech or your ability to say something is not absolute. You can't say anything and everything you want because there's always a limitation as to mm. what you can or consequences cannot do. To exactly. For example, in Almost every country in the world, you can't say anything that is defamatory in nature. Mm. You will get sued. That's just something that you just can't say. And you will say. go bankrupt. Yeah. yeah. Um, there are just some things that you can't say because it is offensive, for example. Um, we have certain laws that prevent discrimination of a certain group of people. And if your statements encourages that discrimination, you yeah. can be sued, for example, or you can actually face jail time in some countries. Um, so I think we need to stop thinking about our ability to speak as something that we have absolutely because we don't and more importantly we also have to recognize the fact that some things are just not factual and if someone is saying something that is not just factually incorrect but also very very um dangerous dangerous or far from the perspective of the actual people leaving it for example um then obviously that that perspective does not carry equal weight in a conversation. I'll give you an example. So if we're talking about the lives of Orang Asli in Malaysia, and we have a group of Orang Asli who's talking about an issue that they're facing and they're saying this is what they're they having this is what they have to deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. This is what they need 
for their lives to be better. And then someone else who is not an or from you know the orang asli community say something and to the effect of that's not correct. If you want to improve the standard of life, these are five things that you need. In that situation, which opinion would you give more weight? Would you give more weight to the opinion of the people actually living it? Or would you give an opi- uh, the opinion of the people who are just, you know, observing and think that they know better? So obviously, in that sense, not all opinions are given equal weight in, you know, specific conversations, for example. And I think these are just the kind of things that we have to be aware about because it's about checking your privilege. So before you talk about something, is it your space to talk about it? Is your opinion affected by your privilege? Uh, and are you being fair to all groups of people affected by your opinion? Um, and if you're absolutely sure about this and you know and many other considerations then you should you know believe that your opinion is not absolute there are other opinions that maybe should matter more than yours thank you so much for being here i think what you've shared is truly inspiring and i think a lot of people students women can actually use a lot of the advice that you gave today so before we end this podcast amelia sharif can you tell me what you seek to speak about because of, in spite, or against? Wow. Um, okay. I think I seek to speak about important issues that impact not just my life, but the life of everyone around me because everyone's opinion should matter, especially when they are facing you know, an issue. Despite all of the challenges and how difficult it is to push for actual change or reforms in law and in change of societal culture and all of that. If that issue is important, we should continuously seek to speak about all of these important issues um, because in a democracy, all we have and the most important tool that we have is our voice to seek to speak about all the important things that matter. Thank you so, so much. I love that. That should be my anthem. That should be MIDP's anthem. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening to the end. If there's any topic you want us to cover on the podcast or any guests you want us to interview, please don't hesitate to contact us through our website, seektospeak.com or leave us a message on our socials and we will try as much as possible to cater to your suggestions. In the meantime, check out our blog and I will talk to you soon. Bye!